When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a special edition to mark the major milestone Lewis Hamilton has just reached in Formula 1, becoming the first driver to score 100 Grand Prix victories. Hamilton's triumph in last weekend's Russian Grand Prix extended his existing world record in terms of race wins, which he took from Michael Schumacher, who has 91, when he triumphed in the Eiffel Grand Prix at the Nürburgring in 2020. He had to wait a while since racking up win number 99, something we'll be discussing in this podcast, as well as ranking Hamilton's 10 best F1 wins. That victory came back at Silverstone in July, following Hamilton's controversial clash with 2021 title rival Max Verstappen. Since then, F1 witnessed a race of chaos in Hungary, the Spa washout, Red Bull getting back to winning ways at the Dutch Grand Prix and McLaren's surprise domination at Monza. Then came Sochi, where Hamilton prevailed in the late rainstorm, which scuppered things for one of the drivers best placed to succeed him as Britain's leading F1 driver, and that was of course Lando Norris. Now for this special edition of the Autosport podcast, I'm joined by two special guests. The first is Autosport's chief editor, Kevin Turner. Now, first of all, how are you, Kev? And also, can you please explain to the listeners just how we've marked Hamilton's special achievement in this week's magazine? Because it's not just that lovely green banner that's on the cover, is it? It's not just that. Yes, hello. No, I'm fine. Thank you, Alex. But uh, yeah, we've got the, obviously the traditional green banner for when there's a major British motorsport success. But also, we made the magazine bigger to include... Um, well, obviously, the, the the comments that Lewis made afterwards to get his kind of initial feedback from reaching reaching the milestone. We've spoken to some of the people um, that have finished second to him over the years, in particular races, but then also to get their views uh, on him as a driver. So Nick Hardfield, Felipe Massa, and Roman Grosjean, and we've also done a big a big stats download. So every single one of his races is there. Uh, we've done various cool things like um, pull out 
the list of all the tracks that he's won at, all the people that finished second to him, where he started for those wins. So if you're if you're a stats geek, then hopefully that's pretty much everything that we could think of with Lewis Hamilton's 100 wins we uh, we included in that one. So and obviously it goes along with your excellent analysis of the Russian Grand Prix as well. So it's quite a quite a bumper issue and definitely definitely something worth marking. You know how it's not not going to be very often that uh, that we mark a milestone like this. Indeed, indeed. And you're, you're far too kind. That was, um, well, well, I think the end product of that race report was very good. It was remarkably difficult to put together because it was a fascinating strategy battle at Sochi, even before the rain came. And then you had to figure out how all of them, well, that did get around, um, you know, that apart from Latifi who crashed out, how they'd all survived in the rain shower. But anyway, I'm getting completely sidetracked, which is a good start for a podcast. So let's introduce our second guest. And He's witnessed the vast majority of Hamilton's Formula 1 wins at McLaren and Mercedes firsthand. It's motorsport.com's F1 editor, Jonathan Noble. How are you, John? And my opening question to you is, please, can you put the achievement of a driver winning 100 Formula 1 races into context? Just how big a moment is this for Formula 1? I think it will become bigger as we look back on it more in the future. I think it was slightly overshadowed by the nature of the Russian Grand Prix, that the late race heartbreak for Lando Norris kind of deflated... Um, things a lot of people is all anticipating up to this great battle at the end and then Lewis came through as kind of oh everyone feels so sorry for Lando and Hamilton didn't get kind of the, the recognition that he would have had if it had come during a phase of the championship where he's dominating and the talk all weekend would be can you get to the 100 but I think as we look back on it um, as human beings you know we love round numbers um, it's, you see it in stock markets and prices in shops and everything that a round number means a lot more then so 100 means an awful lot more than 99 so I think it is an important milestone no one else in Formula 1 is going to get to 100 before Lewis Hamilton if he goes on I mean I'll, I'll be very very surprised if he gets to 200 in fact I'd be very surprised if any driver gets to 200 so I think the, the first one to get the century is a is a big moment for F1 even if we didn't quite appreciate as much as we probably could have done on Sunday Indeed, I also thought that a secondary element in terms of that 100th race victory that took some of the shine off things for both Hamilton and Mercedes was the fact that Max Verstappen went from the back of the grid to second because you sort of, you get the hint, you get the feeling that Lewis wants that eighth world title more than anything else. And obviously they would have known that perhaps they were they were expecting to have a big points all knowing the Red Bull was starting at the back, but it didn't work out that way. Kev, I mean, did you ever think 100 race wins would, would be achieved in Formula 1? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Records are there to be broken, but no, I don't think... Uh, yeah, when Mark Schumacher set 91, that just seemed a ridiculous number in itself. And for Lewis to get there, yeah, I'm sure someone will break it in the future. You know, seasons are getting longer. Careers, you know, drivers, you know, Max Verstappen, so young when he started, it was not impossible that he could be the one that breaks it if, if his career goes the way he, he wants to wants it to. But yeah, I, I don't think you could have you could have predicted it. Hundred just seemed you know, I remember I you know, I got really into Formula One when Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna were battling out and their combined total is ninety two. Uh, and they seem to be, you know, dominating Formula One for years. So for for Lewis to come along and get to a hundred on his own, I think it's, yeah, it's an incredible achievement. Um, but now we've learned that records records can be broken. So I'm sure Hamilton's will be vulnerable at some point. Um, but I think John's right. You know, being the first to a hundred, yeah, it does it does mean something. It's just it is a remarkable achievement. 
Indeed, indeed, and it's, it's interesting to think that you know Formula One with the with the upcoming rules changed. It's 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 the, the the thinking behind that is to stop one team absolutely dominating as Mercedes have of late, as Ferrari did at the start of the start of this century. But you know that is in Formula One's history. There's always been teams that dominated, so it remains to be seen uh, whether that comes to pass. But if it does, you would you would expect if the wins are spread out a lot more, it'd be much much harder for one particular driver to to get anywhere near Hamilton's total. But again, you know if it does come to pass that another team enters an amazing cycle like Mercedes did as you say Kev with the with the with the races with the season length approaching 25 it's not going to be all that many I think um when when Lewis matched or broke Michael Schumacher's record Daniel Ricciardo must have been when he broke it at the Nürburgring because Ricciardo was in the press conference with him and Ricciardo said that achievement is basically you think of that that total it's basically winning every single race for five years that's 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 the sort of that's the that's the level of domination that he's had, and that's what it takes to to reach that high numbers. Um, but John, just thinking about this uh, this milestone in the context of Hamilton's career, where do you think that ranks along his other achievements? I think the number of titles will be the is the thing that most people reflect on when they look back on careers. I think the number. I think if you can go for eight, nine, or even more, um, and take that record, that will mean more than. You know, I think nine titles would be more than 150 wins or something. I think that's what, what people look back on and reflect on. Just as Schumacher breaking Fangio's record and getting seven, I think Lewis, you know, going for eight or nine will, will be a much greater achievement. I think winning world championships, you know, is still the number one aim. It's still the, the most difficult thing to go through. You see the pain that, um, you know, anyone's watched the Schumacher Netflix film, you know, that, that, that pain and the push to get that world championship for Ferrari came you know he had to wait till 2000 and all the all the wins that he got in that that period you know counted for nothing even you know remarkable moment was John Todd said we were questioning if Michael was the the right man did we need someone like Mika Hakkinen despite all the wins so what counts is world championships so while I think it's a you know it will be a nice thing if Lewis Hamilton ends his career with the most world championships the most wins um the most pole positions um I still think that the championship still ranks up there as you know how how the how most people reflect on the success of a driver's career I, I would agree with that but I think it's a little bit of a shame actually that that is the case I, I think that's completely correct but the point surely of any race whether it's in a championship or not is to win it um, and I think it's kind of the purest measure you know a lot of statistics in Formula 1 have been ruined now one way or another you know the fastest lap thing giving a point has, has, has messed that up pole position there in the middle of trying to screw up with this sprint yeah, the sprint race result gives you an official pole position. The point system has been changed. So comparing Hamilton's point score to say somebody like Prost or Senna is point is is pointless. So yeah, the 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 two I think the two uh, stats you can look at and go yes, that is meaningful. Still, are the wins and the and the world titles. And yeah, I completely agree with John that world championships is what he will be remembered for. But I I think the wins and the ratio of wins to starts. You know, Lewis has won more than a third of his. Grand Prix, uh, which if you remember that he had to put up with Red Bull domination for a few years against Sebastian Vettel, I think is remarkable. You know, Prost and Senna are at about twenty five percent. You know, most of the great drivers are in the sort of um, you know mid mid twenty percent range, and and he's over thirty. So I do think that is that is meaningful if you're a bit of a motorsport geek. But yes, I think probably the world titles are what he'll be more famously remembered, and maybe actually longer term legacy might actually not be his on track stuff at all. It might be it might be all the, all the stuff around equality and getting a greater representation on the grid and in the paddock, which I'm sure is probably the legacy he's most interested in. It certainly is. I mean, I spoke to him last year about 
you know what it's taken to what it took to win that 2020 world title and that was what he what he ended on you know I think the question I asked was what goal have you got left to achieve in Formula One and he said well the goal is is the most important one the biggest one which is to improve diversity which you know he you know he's he's, he's obviously at the forefront of that and, and it's something that he has first-hand experience that, no, that nobody else does so it's very important um to him and it's of course a very very important cause but I was just um I was just um reminded John of your point about round numbers how annoyed I still am that Sebastian Loeb left it on nine world titles you know you got you got to go for that 10th one you got to go for that 10th one so if Lewis Hamilton gets anywhere near uh, 10 world titles or, or gets, gets nine he's got to he's got to go for the 10th um but I think it's worth looking back just a few days actually you know there was a, a tweet being shared by Mercedes about Lewis Hamilton joining the team that was obviously in September 2012 ahead of the 2013 season so the nine-year anniversary of the deal being done he would go on you know replace Michael Schumacher of course retired for the second time but John looking back to 2013 did did people what what was what was the feeling in Formula One at that stage about what Hamilton had done because he'd he'd been with McLaren he'd been very successful he'd very nearly won the twenty twelve world title if the car had been more reliable you got to have a, a feeling that he would have been been in the fight there against Alonso and Vettel because it was very fast that McLaren so what was the sense about what Hamilton was risking by going from McLaren to Mercedes I think opinion was divided really there there were those who were very cynical of the move who felt that. Um, he was making a massive mistake. This was was a team that, um, you know, wasn't didn't look like it was going to be gunning for a world championship. Um, didn't look like there was going to be much success on the horizon. And you know, McLaren had been a, a world championship winner. Hamilton had won his title there. The car had looked quick. Um, but equally, there were, there were those who could sense this kind of this change of direction of momentum in the team, especially. I think the key to it was the, was the 2014 regulations. This was always uh, in the back of everyone's mind. This was one of the selling factors that they took to Lewis about the potential from 14, and you could see the the kind of the, the glimmers of potential coming in at Mercedes as the the car was getting quicker, um, was achieving more success on track. Even though you could sense that there was a, a chance of going for a world championship in 14, I don't think. Anybody in that paddock could have predicted the scale of domination that we've seen and that it would become the, not a total Lewis Hamilton era, but a Mercedes era of Formula One with, you know, seven, is it seven consecutive world championships, constructors championships now, and six drives for Lewis, one for Nico. Um, So just an incredible era of domination. That's what wasn't predictable. I think you could suggest they'd made, was making the right move to go there. And I think especially you have to look at the, the problems facing at McLaren. I think it was, thought it was very, very interesting. There was a little comment from Lewis straight after the uh, race in Russia where he took the win and Lando was obviously there and said how great it was to see my old team up there and that they're united again. And I thought that was a really telling point because, you know, his final times at McLaren, there was the, you know, the, the power battles going on between Ron Dennis, Whitmarsh was team principal you know, a lot of uncertainty about where the, the team was going and what was happening. So I think that was quite telling. So as much as Mercedes has sold it to Lewis, I think equally there were some kind of uncertainties and doubts at McLaren at the time as to whether it had long-term potential as well. And Kev, that's the sort of other side of this story. Is is It's obviously, it's a much more minor part, but it is what happened to McLaren after Hamilton left because you know, just looking at the bare stats, if you don't know the history, if you haven't you know read up on things like that, it just looks like Hamilton 
leaves and it all falls apart for McLaren. But it was sort of it was more it was much more complex than that. Things were things had been building for for a long time. But it just shows you how long it is how long it took for the team to get back to winning ways. I mean, 2012, uh, Jensen Button wins the last race in Brazil, and it's only Daniel Ricciardo winning at Monza that ends that that awful streak for McLaren. Yeah, I think um, it does look bad, as you say. It looks like Lewis leaves, and it's just a disaster. But I think there were underlying issues, as, as John says. You know, I know there are people who are there at the time that think actually it can go back as far as the the, the Spygate and the fine they had prevented them from putting investment into new facilities and all that sort of thing, which eventually caught up with them as time went by. Um, so they were just yeah they they were heading they were heading in the wrong direction. When Lewis left, obviously they then tried a bit of a. They tried to make a big leap for for 2013 um, to try and finally do that last bridge to to Red Bull, and actually went the wrong way, and the car you know wasn't really any good. Um, and they still had Jensen Button, you know, world champion who'd run had actually outscored Lewis across three years they'd been together. It's not in terms of wins, but in terms of points. Um, so it's not like they they didn't have some strength on the driver driver line up front. So yeah, I think that their their issues were you know, were, were much, much more deep than just Lewis losing Hamilton. I think maybe that was, he, he was indicative of where the momentum was going in the F1 paddock, but I don't think you could say losing Lewis was the thing that uh, that kind of ended the McLaren, uh, McLaren running at the front. Well, let's talk about Hamilton and, and how he has sustained his success because it's it's never easy for any sports person in any field to do what Lewis has done in terms of be successful over a massively long period of time. Think about Nico Rosberg, how much it took him just to win one world title. He said that, well, that, that was enough. I can't, I can't do that again. So of course he goes and retires. Um, so John, what's your impression of how Lewis has kept that motivation high, how he's kept himself, you know, just trying to get better and better? Because again, when I spoke to him last year, that was something he said, you know, that I, I do feel like I am still getting better as I get older. And you think about, you know, that season, he'd said, right, oh, in 2019, I only got four or five pole positions, whereas before I was getting double that. So I need to improve when it comes to qualifying. And he did. And that was a key part of his title win last year. So yeah, how has Hamilton kept raising the game? Part of it is this brilliant psychological makeup of believing he's the best in the business, but believing that at any point, that could get taken away from him if he doesn't work as hard as he needs to. And this paranoia of falling off the cliff and that that performance not being there. Um, I thought it was something that, again, going back to the Schumacher Netflix film where Corinna talked about Michael having this this winter in uh, Norway after the the 97 championship and um, just shut off from Formula 1. And then as he returned for 98, just the doubts about, I'm not sure if I can do this anymore, I need to check if I'm there. And I think... Lewis almost goes through the same thing that there's this um, uncertainty about his performance. Has he maximised his work with the engineers? Has he maximised his understanding of tyres? Has he maximised his qualifying performance, his race performance? All these elements. And I think it's the, the, this work ethic he's got that he doesn't rely on his natural talent. He he knows he's quick, but he knows he has to work and has to find details and pushes on with marginal gains. And he's kept hungry and he's kept motivated. You've never sensed any time where he's been tired of racing in Formula 1 or bored of racing in Formula 1 there's been frustrations you know he has annoyances that you know Ferrari had such a strong engine in 2018 he's had you know annoyances and difficulties with Nico Rosberg and the the falling out which I think was was probably the low the low point for Lewis at Mercedes during that era um, when there was a big danger of the whole thing falling apart but through it all he just keeps pushing he keeps working and constantly trying to improve without complacency falling in and without motivation falling away. 
I think you could argue actually that 2016 season, it was the kind of final thing that completed that process in that he, yes, we know he had unreliability problems and that Nico was probably being a bit political behind the scenes in a way that Lewis doesn't appreciate. He just likes to rock up and do his thing. He's not really a, a political character in that sense. But he also gave away some points that year with poor starts. Um, so a combination of Nico absolutely maximising what he had and making sure he did get good starts, a bit of unreliability for Lewis, was enough for him to lose a championship that he, you know, clearly he never thought he should have lost that championship to Nico Rosberg and he probably shouldn't have done. And I think the 2017 Spet Hamilton, since then, we've seen him just be making absolutely sure there isn't any way that he's going to lose a championship like that again. And I think he's been pretty awesome since the second half of of 2017 um obviously there have been periods where ferrari had the quicker car um and he and we'll talk about that later i'm sure but you know he stepped up and he's just i think he's been brilliant i suspect probably the big wider faster cars suit him as well when you look back at the photos and footage of the pre-2017 cars they do look a bit skinny and rubbish i do think they look quite a lot better now and i think the environment at mercedes without nico has obviously been better for him as well. He doesn't really want an an in, an intra team fight. He wants to be, you know, the the main guy that the team's built around taking on Ferrari or Red Bull or whatever. That's the sort of fight he likes. So I think it's a combination of all those factors and his own personal drive. Um, it is remarkable that he just keeps, you know, he keeps keeps going and, and and improving. And I really like that line he came up with. I think it was last year where even if he's on pole, he imagines himself or a car just that little bit out of reach. So he's always striving. Because you know, if you've ever played a computer game where you're racing a ghost car, you do drive better when you when you when you're trying to catch that ghost car. And he's having that in real, yeah, you know, in his head in real life. I think that was quite. It shows you know you could be on pole by a second and he'd still go. Oh, I'm going to try and get that invisible car just to find that extra little something. Indeed, and it's also worth saying, you know, there's this always this tiresome, ridiculous point trotted out. You know, it's all about the car. Now, of course, we know Formula One, the car is very, very important. Um, but in, you know, to a certain degree, that point just doesn't work because what if it's all about the car? Why isn't Valtteri Bottas winning every race and, and things like that at the moment? But what what is undeniable is in terms of kits, the tyres that Lewis has used throughout his career. He's only got you know the, the one world title came on the Bridgestones in 2008. All the rest have come on the Pirellis, which don't have the greatest reputation. There's still trouble going on in terms of, you think, Matt Tabaku in in June. But Hamilton's a a master of tyre management. I think if you look at that race in Sochi just gone, okay, he wins the race because the rain comes. But I still, there's a sense that while Lando Norris did excellently to uh, raise his pace, to hold him off for a little bit, you just got the sense that Lewis was doing what he's done so many times throughout his career, mainly to Valtteri Bottas in recent years which is right, I'm just going to sit here, wait for you to destroy your tyres and then I'm going to go past you because that's what that's what he did so successfully. Obviously, it was a bit more dramatic in the early the early years of the Pirelli era, 2013, 2014 uh, onwards and things like that. But anyway, I think that's just something about um, Hamilton's success that, that should always be uh, recognised. But in terms of in terms of his rivals, Kev, you mentioned 2018, obviously going up against Sebastian Vettel. Lewis Hamilton's list of rivals goes back all the way back to when he joined Formula 1 in 2007. Fernando Alonso, his McLaren teammate then, Felipe Massa, of course, Kimi Ryan, and the Ferrari drivers he beat the following year. Then obviously when the McLaren's not so good in the intervening years, that's when Vettel takes ahead. But as you mentioned, Kev, Jensen Button was a real rival in terms of at McLaren because he outscores Hamilton. Uh, but Vettel racking up the titles then again becomes another a direct rival in 2017, 2018 when Vettel's at Ferrari. Nico Rosberg, of course, the uh, the intra-team battle at Mercedes. And now this incredible, almost for the ages, fight with Max Verstappen. So I'm going to ask you you both to, to pick one. Um, unfortunately, um, John, we're coming to you first. Who might you consider to be uh, Lewis Hamilton's greatest Formula One rival? The difficulty with that is they're all 
all those drivers posed headaches to Lewis for very different reasons. None of them necessarily because of pure out-and-out talent. You know, Alonso was the first year in Formula One, very, very political rival. Um, so he was thrust into this massive political battle against a supremely naturally talented driver, which was, you could argue, probably, I was, was probably the most difficult one. I think with Rosberg, the difficulty was that um, I think Lewis felt that he was naturally quicker than Nico, but Nico could deliver the results when it was needed. And Nico was playing games inside the team. And I think that's what something Lewis found very difficult to deal with because he just wanted to be things to be equal and this kid he'd known and grown up with and raced alongside each other karting and had come through the ranks. Suddenly there was this bitterness and bitterness and um, politics going on inside a team, which I think he found difficult to cope with. And then you've got Vettel, who's had the benefit of an Adrian Newey Red Bull. So you're, you're battling against a uh, machine and Vettel with a Ferrari engine as well in that era. Um, I think I had to pick one. I'd probably probably go for Alonso just because of all the complications of talent plus politics plus just this amazing whirlwind of chaos around Spygate and 2017. Um that's the one I'd probably pick out of all of them, whereas the rest he could cope with, but they posed him different different kinds of headaches and different challenges. And Kev, who would you choose? Well, I think John summed it up very well there. I think if you were picking the number of championship fights, he's bit, it's Vettel, isn't it? Because he fought him at Red Bull and at Ferrari. But there's only one drive that you've listed there who I think is on Hamilton's level or was on Hamilton's level, and that is Alonso. And I think it's a real shame. We've discussed this before. We were robbed of that. That should have been the that should have been the contest of the ages during Hamilton's career, but Lonzo obviously went off and drove you know <laughs> middling cars at, at best for for too long. Um, but he's the only. You know, I think we've seen Hamilton's got the better of Vettel. We saw it at, at Ferrari when Ferrari had the edge on the. Yeah, Hamilton's got 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 Vettel tucked up, really. Um, and obviously, he did actually beat Rosberg over the course of their time together. Um, but Alonso is the one guy I think that that. Uh, yeah, could have, could have, could have, should have, would have been been up there with him. Obviously, we haven't yet seen the the Max Verstappen thing uh, to its conclusion. I would say that at the moment, I don't think crashing into Lewis every couple of weeks really makes you a particularly brilliant rival. I think that Max has got to show that he's prepared to let Lewis and Max Lewis and him get round the corner together, and then we'll have a, a you know a great rivalry. So yeah, at the moment, I'd say in terms of top fights, it's Vettel, but in terms of ability, it's Alonso. Indeed, and I think it's, it's worth adding, if I was going to pick anyone, I probably would pick Alonso as well, mainly because of the way Alonso still races Hamilton, even though they're not in the same fight anymore. You link back with that race in Mexico, where Alonso was in that awful McLaren, and he really raced Lewis extremely what, hard, and then what, he- holding him off in Hungary in the Alpine to help Ocon win. Yeah, would anyone else have done that in the Alpine? I'm not convinced they would have done. Uh, I mean, Verstappen, you probably would have driven them both off the track. I'm sorry, I know that that sounds like I'm being a bit anti-max, but I'm kind of a bit sick of their not being able to race wheel-to-wheel together. As the, the cover of the magazine after Monza may have suggested, yeah. I want to see a clean fight between you know the two best drivers in the world, not one of them ending up on top of the other one in a gravel trap. I think that's a bit rubbish. But uh, yeah, I think Alonso's racecraft, uh, yeah, he, he doesn't really have any chinks in his, his armour either, other than perhaps some of the off-track stuff. Yeah, he's made all the wrong career moves, whereas Lewis made the one career move that was now looks like absolute genius even I, I was chatting to someone even at Toyota during Alonso's uh, you know sojourn outside the championship there's there's talk of how he was 
just an incredible political operator even there and that it was a two-car fight you know they had no no uh, no real rivals but anyway we get again i'm getting massively sidetracked and um, john we spoke about how mclaren has changed after lewis hamilton left but do you think we can also sort of say that during lewis hamilton's career formula one has has almost fundamentally changed you think about how okay it was red bull winning at the time when lewis left uh, mclaren but and the years after that, McLaren and Ferrari, once the, 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 the preeminent teams, you think in the previous era, they've you know taken a massive step back and are having to build back. Mercedes changes massively. Red Bull has also changed massively. And Kev, I think we've chatted about this. I think that in the future, we're going to come and look back on that Red Bull team that was, you know, organised very quickly, taking over from Jaguar and went on to become one of the best squads in Formula One. What an amazing operation they've done there. But in terms of Formula One, you know, the engine formula changes, the things with the climate crisis are really having to be recognised as, you know, in terms of um, the way the automotive industry is going, things have got to change. Uh, The teams have run differently. Look at how Toto Wolff runs Mercedes in terms of like, uh, you know, an entrepreneur thing rather than a big super team that's backed by a massive sponsor. And Formula One itself, of course, being sold to Liberty Media. So just how much has Hamilton's career encapsulated all that change the biggest influence of it all was the threat of the kind of um photo breakaway the late 2010 period when the teams were trying to get power and rest rest it from ecclestone and there was the chance of them winning so ecclestone picked them off by offering the big teams extra cash basically so picked them out so you handed all these constructors championship bonuses to ferrari to red bull and then mercedes managed to grab it as well which then basically triggered a two-tier Formula 1 because the the best teams had far more money than anybody else split the grid so you had three teams at the front and everyone else not only behind but well behind I think I think I'm correct in saying in 2017 and 2018 there are only two non-Mercedes Red Bull Ferrari cars on the podium which was the Force Indias in Baku one year Lance Stroll and one year Sergio Perez so this, this was the the low point in F1's competitiveness. This is the thing that Liberty Media are now trying to roll back. So the cost cap coming in to stop the big spenders spending their way to success, um, a better revenue distribution system. So um, the smaller teams have more money. We've got this like mini aero handicap system to hand the back teams a little bit more. Hopefully we've got cars that can race better. And we are seeing the grid coming together now. So I think during that era, if you weren't in one of those top three teams, you weren't going to get much success. And luckily for Lewis, he joined one of those top three teams and had joined the team that completely nailed the, the 2014 engine, which was enough to keep them ahead for the, the first era. But at a time when Toto Wolff was you know, brilliantly bringing in a new management philosophy into Formula One and had pushed hard on the aero front. And then that, that team while it had the engine advantage, also built up its aero knowledge and became very strong on that front as well. And it was it was a, a double combination that Red Bull couldn't match at all times because they were lacking on the engine front despite having Adrian Newey on board. Kev, going back to Silverstone in July, because we've been planning this podcast ever since then, it's been like, right, let's get ready to go because we never know when he's going to hit 100 wins. We've got to, we've got to have this have this planned in. We've got to change the magazine. It's a 100-page special, as you said earlier this week. Kind of surprised that it took Lewis so long because it, it, it's kind of weird. He's in a very close championship fight, but there's been some there's been more Formula One randomness injected along the way to the point where one of the German publications, Build, kept asking Hamilton if he thought the hundredth win was cursed, which is, of course is is ridiculous. But it's just just interesting to to think you know you, you're on the verge of that milestone. It's 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 this is not coming. 
Yeah, I think if you'd asked that at the end of last year or even the start of this year, you'd have said, yeah, he's, it's, you know, why is it taking as <laughs> why is it taking until September him to get it? But I think by Silverstone we knew, didn't we? Yeah, we we know that the Red Bull more often than not has got a slight pace advantage, and that and that Hamilton's a bit up against it. And Max and Red Bull are good enough operators that they. I mean, I know that they did make their, they had a bad pit stop at Monza, but normally they are pretty on it. So all things being equal, it was going to take uh, a while. I think that what's been brilliant about this season is we have had a couple of the random winners as well, which is what you want. You always want a good championship fight and then a couple of random winners like Ocon and Ricciardo. That's that's fantastic. So, no, I'm not too surprised after Silverstone that it took this long. We weren't quite ready in Hungary, so I was quite pleased that Alonso uh, actually managed to hold up Hamilton's charge enough for Ocon to win because we were that would have made it the Sunday night, Monday, really quite hard work. But, um, yeah, by by um, by Monza and then obviously Russia we were a bit more on top of it so um, uh, yeah no it was, it was good that there was a little bit of a delay but it's good that it's off his, off his back um, now as well just going back to, to what you were saying about the different eras it's also worth mentioning of course that Lewis has been able to adapt to those different the different regulations very well. The top drivers always do, of course, but you know, he had the, you, you mentioned earlier, like the Bridgestone sort of sprint format. He's gone through the different engine change regulations, all the energy management, looking after the tyres, which I agree with you. I think it's one of the underrated parts of his game. Um, you yeah, know, he's had, yeah, now we've got sprint qualifying. There's lots of different things that he's had to adapt to and he's, you yeah, know, he just doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything really that, that catches him out. Uh, I think you could now say that he's become a driver of change. You know, would Mercedes be running two black cars if it wasn't for Lewis Hamilton? I would suggest not. So I think he's now been with the Hamilton Commission. He has now, in his last year or two, I think he's becoming a driver of change within Formula One. Indeed, and he's, he's spoken about how surprised he was, surprised and, and touched and, and really happy to hear that Mercedes were going to do that. There is some suggestion that they might go back to, to silver for 2022, which again, I think I think Lewis is like, well, there's, there's almost more important things. We've started the ball rolling. Um, we're committed as a team to, to, to improving when it comes to diversity and, and changing things in motorsport as well. John, we know Lewis has got a new two-year contract coming up uh, with Mercedes as we go into the new era in 2022. He's going up against a, a, a highly rated teammate in George Russell, raising the spectre of could we get another rivalry like we had uh, with Mercedes? But then if uh, you know if the Red Bull continues to be a threat, if you know other teams come back into the mix, it could be even more exciting than that. But how many possibly might Lewis go on to get as his final win total in Formula One? I think the, the critical point will be who's who's got these twenty one regulations right. I think the general consensus in the paddock is for all the all the, the Liberty Media's aims of the cost cap and equal revenue share and closer racing cars will work in the long term and should bring us a, a grid that's as unpredictable as it is right now, which isn't why we're changing rules. But I think in the short term, one team is going to absolutely nail it and dominate in the first phases of 2022. So I think if if Mercedes get it right, then you could easily see Lewis adding six, seven, eight wins each year. So... Um, and you could probably, I could see him doing another contract beyond these two. I don't think he'll do these two and then disappear. I think if there's if there's if there's a decent amount of success and he feels he's still got it and is invigorated by what Russell brings to the team and this this challenge of new drivers coming through, then I think he could add twenty, thirty more wins in total before before the end. But I think if if Mercedes get it wrong next year and are struggling and it's a, a poor season, then you could easily see that tally not getting added very much and then Lewis decides after two years actually I'm only interested in winning I'm only in the success and then he disappears off so I think it'll, it'll be an awful lot more 
or not very many at all. There won't be anything in the middle. <laughs> and the sort of the other extra element of will he carry on beyond his next contract is that he, I'm sure he knows and, 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 and most athletes do, they're worth far more in terms of what they can earn, but also the messages that they want to promote by being active and successful in the in the sports that they're in. You think about what Sebastian Vettel, the messages he conveyed in Hungary with the with the LGBTQ uh, rainbow t-shirt. You think about him picking up litter. You know, he knows he's going to get more coverage because he is still a Formula One driver. It's the same with Lewis Hamilton and promoting diversity. It's, it's, that, it's that much more important to be a Formula One driver than a former Formula One driver. I think that's always a factor in there. Um, but Kev, coming to you, um, before we come on to go into your, um, your you've ranked, you've done one of your wonderful lists of Lewis's top 10 Formula One wins. Um, but coming to you just about, because we know we've had this debate, we've, we've produced a whole special magazine celebrating Autosport 70 years about considering the greatest. What does the greatest mean in motorsport? But now Lewis Hamilton has achieved 100 wins. I mean, he was already at this point. He is statistically the greatest driver of all time because he's matched Schumacher in terms of win total, surpassed him, and obviously he's matched him in seven world titles. So he is he is the greatest statistically. Now he's got to 100. He's potentially going to go on to win more championships. Where is he now in the debate of who's the greatest Formula One driver? I don't think that getting to 100 makes any real difference in that sense. We know what Hamilton is now. We're close enough to the end of his career. I mean, I'm intrigued to hear John suggest that he could go on beyond the the next two years. I mean, if he were to do that and was to genuinely be able to fight off, you know, the whole generation of Leclerc, Verstappen, Russell, <laughs> I mean, then that would that really would be remarkable. I'm surely age will catch up with him eventually. Um, but yeah, I don't think we really. You wouldn't say, oh no, he's definitely the greatest now that he's got to 100. I don't think it's you know it's all about context. All the things we've been talking about. You know, there was that period at McLaren where you know he was beaten by Button. He did lose a championship to Rosberg. You know, these these facts will always be there. And I think we've talked about bef- talked about before. What could he possibly do on track to somehow increase the the you know, the position that he's already in, which let's face it, he's in, for me, he's in the top three greatest F1 drivers of all time. What could he do to lift that up? The only thing I can really think of is if, if, is if he quit Mercedes and went to Ferrari and went, right, I'm going to win a chance at Ferrari that, no, Alonso didn't do it, Vettel didn't do it, Alain Prost didn't do it back in the day. If he went there and went, right, I'm going to win a world championship with Ferrari, then, I mean, that really would be remarkable. But that, he, he would be crazy to do that at this point in his career. I don't think that's, I don't think that's very likely. Um, so no, he's he's in he's in the debate. Obviously, it boils down to what your criteria you're looking at, and we could do an entire podcast on on who the greatest race driver, one driver is. We, well, yes, quite. Um, but I don't think the yeah, I don't think the the addict the getting to a hundred or an eighth world title, seven, eight, nine makes a huge amount of difference. It's more about the the context that those successes are scored in, really. It is, it is. And, and while I'm going to remain sitting on the fence here in terms of giving an opinion on who's the greatest Formula 1 driver, I do think an, another interesting element is what have drivers changed what have they what have they done in terms of their personalities and their achievements you look at Jackie Stewart and all the achievements in safety that he promoted and he achieved what what wonderful extra element that is to add into the debate but on Lewis's side he's driving this force for change in motorsport and to improve things for people that have been underrepresented and I think that's a a big consideration when you think about the greatest in in terms of how you define that but as you say Kev that is that is a chat for another podcast Let's come on to your top 10 list. You've done it again. You've, 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 uh, you've spent many an evening considering Lewis Hamilton's, uh, well, I suppose it was 99 right up until, uh, right up until Sochi, which isn't, which isn't in there. The 2021 Russian Grand Prix. Going to give that away now to the listeners. Um, we're going to go to the first one at number 10, which is the 2013 Hungarian Grand Prix. And that's Hamilton's 120th Formula One race, his 22nd victory. But it's first for Mercedes. And John, I'm going to come to you. What, have you got any particular memories of that day at the Hungaroring? I imagine it was quite hot at the Hungaroring in July. 
I think that the, the, the abiding memory of that time was more the, the political background to it all. Not only that it, that it was Lewis's first win, but it was the year of the, the famous Mercedes secret test in Barcelona. So this had been a you know, real ongoing political battle between... This was the, the point where Mercedes had become a serious threat to the other teams. So they'd run this test after Spanish Grand Prix with Nico and Lewis. It was a, a tyre test, right, for, with Pirelli? Yeah, the tyre yeah. test. Yeah. Um, and so they'd run this test after Grand Prix both drivers in black helmets so although they claimed there there was no reason to keep who was driving secret so big political thing they got um, although they were cleared of a a major rules breach there was an FI hearing and they agreed to not run a young driver test but the belief was that this test had had allowed Mercedes to better understand the huge tyre degradation problems they'd had because they'd had races where the car was quick but just couldn't look after its tyres and was mashing the tyres. So Hungary was, you know, no surprise to see Lewis on pole position as such, but you thought there's no way in the heat of Hungary that car is going to be able to look after its tyres and manage it. And this, this was the day it turned. This is the day he, he did it, he nailed it. Key was that, that move on Jensen Button um, after the pit stops, which got him through. So I think that was the... The arrival there was not only that Lewis's first win for Mercedes, but confirmation about the, the kind of the, the background to that secret test, and he just sensed that the momentum was gathering that this team was becoming a major force. And Kev, why has that made the list? Why is that in at number ten? Uh, well, I mean, John's outlined it very well there. You know, he looked after the tyres when no one, ex- even he, didn't expect to. I think, uh, after giving his comments after qualifying, he nailed the, the the overtakes on on Button and Mark Webber when he needed to. And also, I like to look at what the, what their teammates are doing when I'm doing these races. And and Nico Rosberg was battling for ninth when his engine let go, and his best lap was almost half a second slower than Hamilton. So, especially given the context, actually, they had some great races and were quite close in subsequent years. I mean, that's that's a thrashing, really. Um, so, you know, just, uh, you know, an error-free, looked after tyres over to it when he had to and thrashed his teammate. And, of course, it was, a, I suppose, a bit of artistic licence because it is a bit of a milestone, you know, his first, his first Mercedes win. Let's come on to number nine, which is the 2012 US Grand Prix at Austin. That's Hamilton's 109th Formula One race, his 21st victory. John, what you, you got any particular memories of being there? Am I right in thinking this is the race where Ferrari uh, tr- uh, triggered the grid penalty for Massa to get Alonso onto the clean side of the grid, or was that another year, Austin? No, it's this. It was this. This. It was the first, Austin's first year. So great, you know, mega venue, and everyone was raving about the venue. And Austin's an amazing city. So you know, F1 was automatically in love with the new home of the American Grand Prix. But the track, as we saw in Turkey last year, the, the new track had absolutely zero grip was like driving on ice it put the onus on starting on the clean side of the grid so much so that when Fernando Alonso was locked in the the title fight at that time and was managed to qualify behind Felipe Massa but on the dirty side of the grid Ferrari basically made Massa a sacrificial lamb and deliberately opened his gearbox to get him a penalty to move Fernando onto the clean side so quite a remarkable remarkable moment really Indeed, and worth worth thinking about in the context of the rumours that Mercedes had done similar things to Valtteri Bottas in Sochi, but they say they didn't for change had to change the engine because the one they put in at Monza uh, was uh, had a, had a big problem with it. But um, Kev, why is the 2012 US Grand Prix on this list at number nine? 
So for me, it sort of sums up one of those rivalries we were talking about, the one with Vettel, where Vettel normally had the advantage because, as, as John said earlier, he had an Adrian Newey uh, Red Bull. Uh, and it was one of those those races, this opportunistic, really. He, he chased, you know, once he got up to second and caught and got, and got up behind Vettel. And there was quite a long period of time where he's behind him. He's not, there's not really a chance. You know, Vettel's just got it, got him covered. You know, he was hanging on in a car that, was it as quick as the Red Bull? Not, not sure. It was at times during that season, certainly. And then, of course, um, Vettel just caught Narain Kartikan's HRT. Do you remember those? They were very slow. Through that, that twisty turn three to seven section, which is a great bit of track, but you can't overtake. And it, it just brought Hamilton into range and he grabbed the lead. Um, so he, he had one opportunity to win that race and he took it. Um, and I think it was, a, it was one of his better sort of sniper wins for McLaren. Indeed, and Pirelli produced those uh, amazing Stetson hats for all the podium uh, podium finishers to to wear. And um, we're going to come on to number eight now, which is the 2011 German Grand Prix at the Nurburgring. That's Hamilton's 81st Formula One race, his 16th win. And Kevin, I'm just going to read out a line from uh, your your copy here because it, it has one of my favourite words in it. So this was another swashbuckling racer's performance that helped Hamilton beat Weber and Fernando Alonso at the Nurburgring. And um, John, were you there? Were you have any particular memories of that race? I don't, nothing stands out in particular from that race. But I, I said to Kevin before we started today that Lewis Hamilton has had a, a career where an awful, he's just had an awful lot of brilliant wins that become almost the norm because, mm. because they're not, don't go against the grain. He's, you know, we know he's a super strong driver who can qualify at the front and perform some brilliant laps and brilliant overtaking moves and brilliant strategy and comes through and wins. So sometimes they kind of all merge into each other. And I think this this is a, a classic one where it wasn't as though he came from the back or pulled off a, an amazing top 10 overtaking F1 history. It was just a classic Lewis Hamilton win that can sometimes get overlooked a little bit, which is why my memory is completely blank on it. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, John, because the um, in the Autosports driver ratings, the, the line was vintage Hamilton. So <laughs> you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, the reason I picked that one was because he had a, he had wheel-to-wheel fights with Alonso and Weber. They really were, the three of them had a, had a pretty much a, almost a race-long fight and they had several key wheel-to-wheel moments, particularly when one or other of them was coming out of the pits because um, it was one of these multiple um Pirelli pit stop era races and in each of those um sort of uh, contests if you like Lewis came out on top yeah he 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 did the he did the moves and he passed Alonso after Alonso's stop um, which as we know is not an easy thing to do so it was it was getting the, the getting the better of two you know two strong rivals um, when it was it could I think it could probably have gone to any one of the three of them Indeed. Well, let's move on to number seven, which is uh, one uh, one of the surprisingly few, uh, Kev, I must say, from Hamilton's early career that's in this uh, list. It's the or career in Formula One, that is. It's the 2008 German Grand Prix at Hockenheim, which is Hamilton's 27th Formula One race, his eighth victory, started from pole position. Um, John, I mean, what, what, what was particularly, was anything particularly different in terms of thinking back to Hamilton's early career in terms of how he won these races? I guess this one mainly memorable because it was Nelson Piquet Jr., and uh, not a rival regularly uh, going up against Lewis Hamilton in his Formula One career. Yeah, I think it, I think it stood out. This this is what Lewis has a brilliant habit of doing: is that you can have races where he, he appears to be in control, everything is going smoothly, and then an incident will turn it on his head. Which in this race was Timo Glock's crash in the safety car and wiping out his lead, and then PK PK getting in front, but. Lewis does, never gets flustered, never kind of throws it away in those circumstances. Even when he's seen a massive lead wiped away from him or something goes against him, just keeps calm and keeps focused and keeps delivering. And that was absolutely critical here. Um, 
seeing his lead wiped away, being on the back foot and having to come through again and, and nailing it. So another classic Lewis win. <laughs> yeah, he, even when he's having a rant on the radio, we've seen it more in the Mercedes days, of course, when he's ranting well on the radio. Um, oh, these tyres are finished, fastest lap, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, he, he, he has a rant, but as, as John says, he doesn't, yeah, he still delivers on track. And this was an early uh, uh, instance of the team inadvertently sort of screwing him over, really. They left him out during the safety car period thinking that he'd be able to build up enough lead and they got it really wrong and dropped him back into the pack. And it looked like a race that M- McLaren had lost. Um, but he just got his head down and he overtook who he needed to overtake. Um, Felipe Massa and, and, and Nelson Piquet Jr. And, and, and kind of saved McLaren's... Yeah, save some red faces, really. If you'd not been able to do that, it would have been a win that they'd have they'd have really thrown away. Just to pick up your point, Alex, on on some of the perhaps the earlier races in his career not being there. I, first of all, I was trying to get a bit of a bit of a spread across different types of races in different eras, but also the ones that come to mind and that I've seen on other people's top ten Hamilton wins lists are Fuji two thousand and seven and Monaco two thousand eight, um, with both wet weather races. I think. One of the reasons I didn't put those in is because I think there's a better wet weather race that we'll get to later. But also, at, at Fuji, Ferrari messed up with their tyres and got penalties and drops to the back, uh, and Alonso crashed. So his main... Op- oh, and, and of course, there was the Vettel Weber behind the safety car. So his rivals essentially took themselves out. And at Monaco in 2008, he biffed the wall. Um, and, OK, he was fantastically fast after that, but it was he needed a little bit of luck with the weather and the way the strategy panned out after that for him to get a win back that he'd sort of thrown away by putting it into the, to the barrier. So if you were doing a top 15 or top 20 or maybe most dramatic Hamilton wins... Then, then it would be there, but I don't think in terms of his pure driving, it was it was it was his best. Indeed, if I was having to do driver ratings for that race, as I do for all the ones in twenty twenty one, it definitely wouldn't have been a maximum. Wouldn't have been a ten. You can't you can't hit a wall and uh, and end up um, uh, even if you do go to win to get the maximum score. But there we go. And let's move on to number six, which is uh, which is a really interesting race actually. Um, is the twenty nineteen uh, Monaco Grand Prix? It's Hamilton's two hundred and thirty fifth race. His seventy seventh win starts on pole position, but. Two things really stand out from this, and um, John, I'm sure you, you'll, you'll expand on this a little bit. Quite an emotional, emotionally charged weekend for Formula One and for Mercedes in particular, following the death of Nicky Lauda. But also the the battle that Hamilton has with Max Verstappen. Maybe Kev, you'll, you'll chat about this. Sort of shadows what's to come in terms of their rivalry because Red Bull hadn't been the big problem for Mercedes during you know the, the, the recent years of that sort of bit of the turbo hybrid era it had been Vettel and Ferrari all three teams were in the mix in 2019 but it's for Snap and hounding Hamilton it was on those uh, on the wrong tyres essentially on the, on the on the medium tyres to, to, to keep it going um, but yeah John what, what, what's your what was your memory of that weekend? The build up to the race itself had been overshadowed by the by Lauda's death and um, drivers didn't speak on the Wednesday I think and then um, Toto did a long thing on Thursday talking about it um, so I had all this the kind of the emotions heading into the weekend I and mean, the, the thing I remember from the race itself was it was the start of this the Lewis Max thing but at, at the time we had access to what were called kangaroo TV sets so you could watch as well as the international feed on the, the main channels in the media centre that you could pick your own channels and watch on board so I watched the race on board from Lewis's car so you could listen to his team radio live as it's happened and um, all I remember all the time was just the, he seemed to be calm, pretty calm in front of Max and it all looked under control but the stress he was going through with traffic, just constantly on the radio, blue flag, blue flag blue flag, all the way through trying to clear traffic, just knowing that if Max had half a sniff, as Max got at one point when he 
came down the inside of the chicane that would be enough so you, you sometimes don't appreciate the the kind of intensity and stress and concern that a driver in the lead can have and even though it looks from the tv cameras that it's pretty much under control and kev why is that at number six it's a really good example of his tire management didn't make a mistake while ahead of probably arguably the most aggressive driver on the grid certainly not someone you'd want to have behind you even at Monaco and obviously if you do make a mistake at Monaco you're in the wall so managing the tyre situation you know when when Mercedes put him onto the mediums instead of the hards Uh, and also to that I think that the moment where Max goes down the inside which to be fair I think he had to have a go at I think that that was a yeah, Monaco is a ridiculous place for a race and that was the one place it was he had a look it wasn't really on uh, at the time I thought yeah he's got to have a go but there wasn't enough of a gap there uh, but I think that pretty much anyone else on the grid has a crash at that point I think the two cars crash but Hamilton has such a good sixth sense perhaps Alonso is the other one he just knew where Max was and what he had to do and he avoided not for the first or last time he avoided he avoided a shunt between the two of them and they were both able to carry on with the race and I just thought it was just an all-round being on to- just on top of his game managing a situation that was gone against him and then avoiding a crash when when the inevitable attack came and of course in the background of all the all the louder emotion as well just shows that he's capable of putting in these top performances whatever is thrown at him from outside or within the race indeed and i have to say looking back i think that the, the cover of autosport magazine that week was was particularly good it was uh lewis pointing to the uh nicky louder liveried helmet that he'd, he'd, he'd uh, worn in that race i thought that was just a particularly good shot um let's move on to number five which is the 2011 chinese grand prix it's hamilton's 74th race in formula one it's 15th win starting from third on the grid but kev first of all why have you picked it at number five but also the really interesting thing about this is how very close hamilton came to not even making the race Yes, um, yeah, the car wouldn't initially fire up when they uh, went to went to go to the grid. So he had, there was quite a last minute, you know, drama to get it out there and, and make sure he was, you know, even in the race. So that's not exactly good preparation. Uh, another example of you know it just bounces off him, um, and it was the opposite to the tire management thing that we've we've talked about before. This was one where he was sort of on the attack, having done the extra stop, but he had to overtake quite a few people. So. Um, he, uh, he had to overtake uh, Jensen Barton, he had to overtake Nico Rosberg, um, Felipe Massa, and then he had to go after Sebastian Vettel. Um, and he caught him, I think he caught him with four or five laps to go and then pulled off a really a really nice move on him to grab the lead and take the win and, and, and then race clear. And uh, at the time, Hamilton said that it was up there in his top three wins. I mean, it was at that stage, it was only his 15th win. So he was up there in his top three when it's 15. But yeah, he'd, he'd gone on the attack and I think drivers like to go on the attack and it's a reminder that, you know, as if one were needed, that, that Hamilton's you know, great when he's attacking as well as when he's having to manage tyres. Well, let's come on to number four, which is the 2014 Bahrain Grand Prix. This is a particularly famous battle between Hamilton and Rosberg. It was his 132nd race, his 24th win, started second on the grid. Um, but I think what was really interesting about this race, as, as we were going to talk about the, the battle with Rosberg on track, was it just demonstrated how much faster the Mercedes cars were over the field as a late safety car and they just disappear and actually it really brought something home to me thinking about 2020 and Lewis's seventh world title is the Imola race where Verstappen is out of the race because his tyre blows blows out and he, and he retires as a safety car the Mercedes cars again just disappear and it just shows you what the W11 how much of a step forward it was what it, what it reasserted in terms of Mercedes dominance and how good Verstappen was to even get close to it and um, but John 2014 Bahrain the battle in the, the duel in the desert that incredible 
driving from both Hamilton and Rosberg. What, what, what are your memories of that? And also, did you, do, you, do you think it contributed a little bit to the sort of animosity between the two of them at that point? I think at the time, what it had been fairly obvious that Mercedes were miles clear of everybody else. Um, and I think for journalists what we like is good narrative to seasons. I don't think I don't think the media centre, despite accusations that oh, all the Brits favour Hamilton and all the Germans favour Vettel and all this sort of thing, I don't think it's as part of the media centre as partisan as that. Um, I think that what journalists love more than anything is a good narrative to a season and a good rivalry and a good battle. And I think the concern was going to 14, that Mercedes were well clear and it could turn into a complete one horse race if the a pair of them you know weren't battling wheel to wheel and weren't doing it there so I think when this duel in the desert happened and there was kind of some chopping and wheel banging and overtaking stuff there were kind of cheers in the music and excitement because this was the battle we wanted that ultimately in a good F1 season you can have one team dominant but it's only a good F1 season if the two drivers in that team are battling each other and fighting and I think this was confirmation that the gloves were off it was going to be um it was going to be a tough battle and that Nico wasn't going to be a pushover because he was going to be super aggressive. And I think that laid down probably the marker to Lewis that Nico wasn't going to be an easy walkover. Just as I you know, suspect this season that the way that Max never conceded to Lewis in the early stages of the season when they were in close first corner moments like Emelie and Barcelona laid the foundations for what's happened this part of the season when Lewis has decided he's not backing out either. So I think it's, it was the start of the process, even if it wasn't necessarily the, the trigger point for it. Kev, why is uh, 2014 Bahrain Grand Prix at number four on your list? For me, it's, it's, it was the first sign that you know, Hamilton's advantage, one of his advantages over Nico was his racecraft. You know, Rosberg was quicker that day. He was also on the quicker tyre at the end of the race. Safety car pushed them together. So you think Nico really will should win this race. And... Hamilton just knew where to put his car. He withstood the pressure every time Nico went for Again, the sixth sense of knowing where to put the car, knowing where not to be as well. And, of course, he was managing the energy as well to make sure that you know, he, he had the electrical energy in the right places. And it was just showing his, his bandwidth, is what an engineer would call it. You know, he's, he's able to manage several things all at the same time. I think the difference between Rosberg and Hamilton was that when Hamilton had the quicker car was, on, was quicker over the weekend, he won the race. And... But when Rosberg had the quicker car and was on pole, you think this could be an interesting race because you knew that in the in in the race Lewis had more weapons at his disposal to sometimes overcome Rosberg, even when Rosberg had got everything right. And that was a, that for me was the, the best example, most exciting example, um, because he just outraced him. He wasn't as quick, but he outraced him. Well, let's move on to number three, which is the first uh, of Hamilton's victories in this list. That actually is a victory that decided a title. Um, and it's one that John referenced earlier. It's the 2020 Turkish Grand Prix at Istanbul Park. Hamilton's 264th race is 94th win, starting from sixth on the grid. Because, as John referenced, the, the, the new asphalt surface that had been laid down, it sort of hadn't quite cured properly. I think it had been only completed about three weeks before the, the race happened. In the dry, even on practice, I remember when I was doing my, my Friday practice analysis, it was that everyone was shocked. Mercedes was like, well, we've got one of the best cars in F1 history and we can't, we can barely keep it on the track in the dry. It's incredible. Um, and then when it rained on Saturday, you got that fascinating qualifying session where Lance Stroll uh, comes out um, on top and Max Verstappen is absolutely furious that he hasn't got pole position. 
it sets up a really fascinating race, which then became a, an incredible race with uh, the racing points leading the early stages. Verstappen spins away his chance to win, but Hamilton's class again rises to the fore in terms of how he gets, you know, with the intermediates, he, he wears them down to slicks and he just keeps going and it's tremendous. Um, but Kev, why is that at number three? Well, I'm almost tempted to throw this back at you because I know that we talked about this as being one of the key moments that helped us sort out our top 50 driver ratings because last year, Obviously, Hamilton was doing the business in one of the greatest Grand Prix cars of all time in the W11. And, and as you said earlier, Max Verstappen was doing a fantastic job hanging on to the Mercs and making it look like there was a race sometimes. Um, and it was kind of nip and tuck between them when we were talking about it before that race. And that race could have, was won by the driver rather than the car. Yeah, Max threw it off um, you know, behind Sergio Perez, I think it was. Racing him, um, yeah. Yeah, he threw it off. And there were a number of drivers that could have won that race. You know, Bottas was 14th after six spins in another Mercedes. So, <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was a race won, won by the driver. And it was a great example of just how mature Hamilton is now. He let the race come to him. You know, they didn't have tyre temperature. They didn't have the grip early on in the race. And he actually falls backwards. Uh, and he didn't panic and... Uh, you know, and 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 get, go go off. I know he had a little quick runoff onto the runoff, but nothing serious. He kept it together, kept in contention, and then once the car came alive, he was quick. And then he made the call to to stay out or not come in, and, and he ended up winning by absolutely miles. So it was it was a it was definitely a race won by the driver, and it was a good answer to all those that go. Oh, he only wins races in the best car. All the great drivers win most of their races in the best car because they get into the best car because they're the best. Um, but they also make the difference on those occasions where they don't have. Um, and I thought that was a brilliant way to, you know, a, 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 just brilliant story, wasn't it, to clinch the championship like that as well. It really underlined the season. Definitely did. I think what was really interesting was that Hamilton, uh, speaking to him afterwards, he, he was saying, you know, he actually thought about China 2007, the race where his his first attempt at a world title in his first season, you know, completely went awry. And, you know, the, the tyres that he were on, they wore down too much. He slid off in the pit lane. And that's what was happening on those intermediates. They were becoming slicks. I think there's almost a little bit of worry very late in the race for Mercedes that if it rains again, we're really in trouble here. But he was able to keep that tyre temperature and also just keep them alive to that point because, other drivers had worn through them much more quickly. He was backing off through that turn eight, just thinking a little bit ahead, thinking the long game, and that's where it, where it came to him. Well, and also, um, I like it when you when you get a rival praise you. That's also a good sign if they've done. And, and I thought, yeah, Sebastian Vettel's comments after the race was was superb. You know, said it wasn't his race to win, and he still won it once again. He managed to pull something special out of the bag. You think, well, that's a four time world champion just going. Fair enough. That was amazing. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Well, um, uh, as, uh, as as regular listeners to the podcast, hopefully we'll remember back to the last time we did uh, discuss some of these top 10 races. The way we, we handle talking about the number one and number two, it's almost impossible for Kev for you to say why one race is number two without revealing what's number one. So I'm going to go, um, going to explain both what is number two and what is number one first, and then we'll have a chat about both races and we'll bring John in as well to share some memories of those events. Um, at number two, it's the 2018 Italian Grand Prix at Monza, Hamilton's 222nd race and his 68th victory, starting on third on the grid. And at number one, as I'm sure many people might have already guessed, because it's such a famous moment in Hamilton's career, it's such a famous Formula One race, full stop, is the 2008 British Grand Prix at Silverstone, his 26th race, his seventh victory from fourth on the grid. So Kev, maybe first of all, can you just explain why they're that way round? Well, they're that way around because I think the 2008 British Grand Prix is one of the all-time great wet weather drives. Another list that I've done, and that one's on it, um, it's his It's his equivalent to Mark Schumacher's Barcelona 96 win or Ayrton Senna's 85 Portugal win. Um, 
yeah, it was a stupendous performance where at times he was three, four, five seconds a lap quicker than uh, drivers on the same tyres. Because obviously there were periods where he was off kilter with what other people were doing. Um, and yeah, they, they were. It wasn't a perfect run. He, you know, he did. He did have you know a misstep here or there. But for someone of such inexperience, you know, it was only his second home Grand Prix. Um, he he just he just annihilated the field and won by over a minute. I think it's one of those yeah, say one of those great wet weather drives where they show someone shows real star quality. Um so it was a for me it was a fairly easy number one, um, I think. The the twenty eighteen Italian Grand Prix I had in there because for me two thousand eighteen is is so far is Hamilton's best season in that uh, okay, by the end of the year the Merck probably was the, the quicker car, but certainly for the first half, maybe two thirds Ferrari had the better car most of the time and should you know the lot that that's the story of that season should have been Hamilton coming back at a Vettel points lead but Vettel didn't have that points lead by the time that happened because Hamilton had you know as we you know we've, we we could have discussed the the German Grand Prix when Vettel drove off the road in the wet and Hamilton won from 14th on the grid which also you could say should have made this list um and then the Italian Grand Prix, to me, just summed it up brilliantly. You know, Ferrari won two on the grid, the wrong way around, because they decided to, and then they decided to sack Kimi that weekend, which perhaps wasn't ideal timing. Vettel got himself into a bit of a flap on the first lap. Hamilton went around the outside of him. Vettel spun. And then Hamilton, I think on a day, probably one of Raikkonen's last great days, where he was really feisty and racy. You know, he repassed Hamilton the first time Hamilton went past him, and he had to grind him down. It was a race again that he that he won. I think it was the the driver making the difference um, rather than the car. So that's why those those two are in there. Uh, and also, I didn't want to have two wet weathered race, races next to each other. So I think you could argue 2018 Italy and 2020 Turkey could have been the other way around. But uh, I wanted to have a, a dry one up there and representing his 2018 campaign. John, on the 2018 Italian Grand Prix, I think Kev's right. You think about that 2018 season, probably you've got to say that's his fi- Hamilton's finest season to date. But that race in particular just, just summed it up. You had Sebastian Vettel spinning away his opportunity after that tap at the, uh, the Della Roggia chicane. Um, Kev does reference the fact that why did Ferrari tell Kimi Raikkonen he was essentially sacked on the morning when he was starting on the, on pole position and things like that. Um, but what were your memories of that race? Like how how impressive was it to see what Hamilton did against those two Ferraris that day? I, I, 2018 Italian Grand Prix remains one of my favourite Grand Prix. Not not necessarily just from the spectacle of the race, just because of the, all the political nuances going on around it. Um, you know, a weekend that Ferrari should have dominated that. Ferrari should have had a, a one-two. As Daniel Ricciardo showed recently, if you're leading after the first chicane at Monza, pretty much no reason why you shouldn't be leading at the end of the race. It's always been a, a race decided on strategy, not racing. Um, and Ferrari having one-two on the grid with a car that was quicker in a straight line, uh, absolutely no excuse to not manage stage manage the situation uh, to ensure that your man's the best in Vettel gets the points needed for the championship and it completely messed it up A by the um, as Kevin mentioned telling Raikkonen he wasn't being retained for the following season so why on earth you do that on race morning and not after the weekend I don't know failing to stage manage the, the first lap which gave Lewis that tiny sniff he needed to disrupt Vettel and getting through there and then in the closing stage after the pit stops um, the critical thing was it was about tyre management that Lewis knew if you managed the tyres in the the initial phase of a stint the durability would be much better whereas Kimi just absolutely nailed it to try to build up a gap which 
kill the tires, blister the tires, um, and then that allowed Lewis to come at him. And that was basically, you know, a race that Lewis shouldn't have won, that Ferrari should have been able to manage it better, and they didn't win it. Uh, and it was, you know, Lewis's driving. All he needs that sniff of Vettel on lap one, and time management in the second stint turned it on its head and um, you know set him on the way for the championship. So it just, I just just really enjoyed that Grand Prix both from the the racing perspective of the battle and also when all the, the political nuances came out and you know you look at all Ferrari what Ferrari could have done to ensure that that race didn't turn out that way and they failed to do it John just thinking a bit further back 10 years further back the 2008 British Grand Prix any any standout memories of that legendary race in Formula 1 history yeah I think what what needs to be put in context there it wasn't wasn't just the brilliance of that that drive on Sunday in the rain, how he did compare to the rivals. It, it was the background to the weekend. The, the 2018 championship appeared to be slipping away from him. That there'd been a run of poor results. Pierre Ferrari was, you know, start, starting to eke out ahead. Just wasn't wasn't gelling for Lewis. There was tension with Fleet Street and the newspapers and the media. Um, just seemed that it wasn't hadn't built on the momentum of 2007. It was all slipping away. Um, and we've seen this often from Lewis that when his back is against the wall, when the, the doubters are there and the skeptics think he's finished and it's all finished, he pulls something out of the bag and bang. And that's exactly what happened at Silverstone that it gone in there, people expecting him to crack and it was all finished. And he delivered this masterful performance that basically rebuilt the momentum and pushed him onto the championship. So I think it was it was the background that stood out that day in the context of delivering that win on that day that was almost as good as the actual performance on the racetrack. Kevin, I'm going to come back to you for one final question on this podcast, but I thought I'd just briefly sort of summarise. You've also done for autosport.com plus, and I'm sure it's in the magazine as well, some some victories that, that got away from Hamilton for various reasons. There's the 2008 Belgian Grand Prix at Spa, that controversial lost win because of the, the battle with uh, with Kimi Raikkonen late in the race. 2012 Singapore Grand Prix, where the McLaren uh, reliability really let him down. He sort of, it's almost that the, the, the narrative of that has actually changed now because people think that as he was walking away from that wrecked McLaren, that that's when he decided he was going to leave and actually Hamilton sort of changing the story now not necessarily changing the story just sort of clarifying that actually things were it was it was different timing around then but there definitely were discussions with Nicky Lauda that weekend that was pivotal pivotal to him joining Mercedes there was a 2015 Monaco Grand Prix where the race got away um, with, uh, with with strategy down there at Mercedes and then of course very very famously in terms of the context of the 2016 season um, the Malaysian Grand Prix uh, where the, the engine failure really really becomes costly in the championship fight um, but those are races that Hamilton didn't win so Kev, last question: Were there any victories that he does have of, all, of those one hundred, or, or the other ninety that nearly made it onto this list but didn't? And, and why was that the case? Yeah, I think probably the one that we we well, we have mentioned it, but we we probably should talk about the the two thousand eighteen German Grand Prix. You know, um, there aren't many races. I think off the top of my head, it's twenty three races in World Championship history that have been won from outside the top ten on the grid. And Hamilton has one of them. You know, it's, it's from 14th. He was fantastically fast when the rain arrived, as you would expect. And it was just, you know, it's a, it was a brilliant performance to to take the victory from that far back. The reason it didn't quite make the list, and in fact, it actually wasn't an initial draft of the list. It was only pushed out by the Turkish Grand Prix um, last year, is because he, he did need to rely on, you know, Vettel's uh, mistake from the lead to win. Um, and I think, you know, John said before that was a, a very key moment in their championship fight. Um, but Vettel plays an active part in that by going off the road and making 
possibly the most important mistake of his career because I think that, that he never really he never really got his mojo back at Ferrari after that. So it's key in that championship battle. Um, and of course, that was also the race where we had that ridiculous Mercedes. They're, every now and again, they have a moment of madness where it's in, in, out, in, oh, I don't know. And Lewis is like, come on, man, I'm across the grass. Um, and he could have got a penalty for that and he, you know, he didn't. But um, so it was, yeah, it was right up there in, in contention, obviously. The fact that he's you know he's got a race win from 14th on the grid that didn't make the top 10, I think, tells you all you need to know about the quality of the, some of the victories he's had. Guys, thank you very much for coming on this podcast and uh, thanks for everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, here's what you can see right now on Autosport Plus. There's my 2021 Russian Grand Prix driver ratings. Charles Bradley has assessed Roman Grosjean's deal with Andretti Autosport and explains what this says about the ex-F1 racer's commitment to IndyCar. And Mark Gallagher's column from the latest issue of GP Racing magazine, which explains how the COVID-19 pandemic is continuing to impact F1 organisers and race promoters. New Autosport Plus subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment. Go to autosport.com slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page, then use that promo code PODCAST for that 50% discount. Thanks for listening today and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.